Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to Genesis. My name is Paul Mumon. I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, if you've got your Bible with you today, I want to invite you to take it and turn to James chapter 2. Uh, James is located in what we call the New Testament. Uh, it's the second half of your Bible. And uh, if you want to fish around, probably towards the end, it, well, towards the end of your Bible is where you'll find the book of James. If you do want to use one of the Bibles that we've got here in the room that are on the floor around, you can turn to page 848, or uh, maybe you like to use something like the version app on your phone. That's a great resource. Uh, feel free to go to James chapter 2 with us. We've been studying through the New Testament book of James together, and because we only set aside six weeks for this series, we need to move to the middle of James 2 today if we're going to make it all the way through. And uh, as we've done these past couple of weeks, uh, if you're able, I'd love to invite you to stand with us as you, uh, if you would. Uh, we're going to read our text together today out loud. And uh, so if you'll join me, the words are here on the screen. We want to start in James 2, uh, just six verses, but let's read these words out together. All right. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God good, even the demons believe that and shudder. You can have a seat. And as we begin today, I, I want to remind you, I, I want to suggest as we think about what God has for us today and what he wants to do in us and through our church, uh, there's something really important that we've got to note right from the top here of, of this message, and that is that James' primary audience, okay, again, the people that he's writing to were Christians, all right? These were Christians. These were people who had come to faith and put their trust uh, in the Lord. And so they are people who already believe. And so uh, his message then is, is to Christians again, uh, who would say that, you know what, I, I've put my faith in the Lord, and, and maybe like many of you today, well, we kind of listen with that, that same ear as well. And, and what's his message? It's just simply this, that, that going to church is not enough. Uh, going through the motions of, of so-called Christianity is not enough. Like call, calling yourself a Christian is not enough, or just because your parents went to church, it's not enough. It's not enough to, to, to say what you believe. All right, this is what James is going to get at for us. It's not enough to say that you believe that real, genuine, uh, living faith is, is active. It, it reveals itself. There's, there's evidence to it by our lives, and it stands out, and it's ready to be used by God uh, for greater things in our life, but also for greater things in this world. And so this really is the heart of Christianity. Today, is a lot of, it just has to do with what it really means to follow Jesus uh, here in this world. And so let's pray as we begin. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time and for this place this morning, Lord. We thank you for your word and your guidance and direction. And I just want to acknowledge right at the top, these are some tough words. Uh, they've been words that have easily been misunderstood stood over the years, uh, but we believe that you've got something really powerful and special uh, for us in these words today. And so would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, Lord, and uh, to be ready to receive these words and, and, and put them to, to practice. Uh, Father, we pray that, that as your presence is here with us and guiding and direct us, that you'll move us to action, even as we walk out of here in just a few minutes. And so help me to be faithful today uh, with what I share. Speak through me, God, and, uh, and do what you want to do. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. You know, it was the uh, late 1980s um, with the fast food chain McDonald's was really struggling, going through some difficult financial times. Their sales were down. Uh, new competitors like Subway had come to the market and were doing well. And, and so McDonald's did what a lot of businesses do when they're going through tough times. They, they pulled their customers. Uh, they just simply kind of did a survey of their customers, simply asking, like, what should we do? Like, what, what is it that you want from us? And the overwhelming response was this, we want healthier food. That's what people said to McDonald's. We want, we want healthier food, and so give us something less fattening. And so McDonald's put their vast resources and their staff together, and, and they came up with this, the McLean Deluxe, all right? How, how many of you remember the McLean Deluxe? Anyone around the room, all right, a few of you, the McLean Deluxe, all right? And, and if you're old enough, you, you remember this, all right? But it made its debut back in 1991 uh, to tremendous fanfare, a lot of marketing and dollars. In fact, the beef industry had a lot of concerns that they wouldn't be able to keep up with demand, that they wouldn't be able to produce enough lean beef uh, for the market. But you know what? It was never an issue. They never had to worry about it never became a big deal because in the end, the McLean Deluxe was a flop. In fact, it hung around for about five years, only made up of about 2% of McDonald's sales. In fact, today, it lives only on the internet as, and often shows as one of the top 10 worst corporate mistakes ever, all right? And uh, what was McDonald's biggest mistake, really, in creating the McLean Deluxe? Well, it seems they overlooked a fundamental truth of human behavior, and that's this, that knowing the right thing doesn't necessarily translate into doing the right thing, okay? That we can know something, that we can say we believe something or even want something, but then do nothing about it or uh, re re respond in a way uh, that's, that's not like, you know, at least what we're saying. The, the, th the things don't add up. And you know what? It's true of us in so many areas of our life when you think about it, that, that what we know, what we believe, and what we say doesn't always translate into action or into what we do. And that's how James is going to challenge us with this passage today. Now, just a reminder that James is a really practical look at how to live as a follower of Jesus. If you remember way back to week one, just some of the first verses of James, he said, he, again, he's speaking to Christians and said, hey, I want you to grow up. Like, I want you to keep maturing in your faith, all right? That, that when you came to Christ, that's just a starting point in your faith. But, but keep looking more and more like Jesus every day and in everything you do. And so let's dive into what he has to say for us today, kind of verse by verse, starting in verse 14. James opens with, what good is it? All right, notice the emphasis, all right? It's there for a reason. He just says, what, what's the point, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but no deeds? Can such faith save them? Now, I point out again that James is writing to Christians here, all right? Again, these are, are people who say they believe, all right? And, and James, I think what I take is that James is concerned and maybe sees a, a pattern developing here, but he just simply asks, again, what, what good is it? Like, basically, like, is it enough to believe? Like, is, is it enough to say the right words? Is it enough to think the right things? Like, is that really enough? And the point he's going to make is, no, it's not enough. Like, it's not enough to just say something. It's not enough to just think something. Faith is more than believing, All right, It's more than believing. Faith is more than the words we use. According to James, real, genuine faith should translate into action. And I think this passage, by the way, is so relevant for us today. And it was relevant 2,000 years ago in a really difficult Roman empire, a challenging culture, it's difficult and challenging today. Like, because, you know, here in the U.S. today, it's easy for someone to claim that, that they're a Christian, but we've become so comfortable with claiming belief 
and then not doing anything with it, not doing anything about it. In fact, several years ago now, Ken Woodward, a writer, a religious correspondent for Newsweek magazine. Anybody remember Newsweek magazine? Some of you are like, what's a magazine? Like, what, what? I, I don't understand what you're saying here. But, but here, here's what he wrote about this. And I, I think this is still relevant even a few years later and maybe more so. He said this, he said, sociologists have long puzzled over surveys that show that the United States is the most religious nation in the advanced industrial West. When asked, more than 90% of Americans profess a belief in God. Uh, more than half say they pray at least once a day. And in any given week, more than 40% claim to have attended worship services. All this in a society that is overtly, even aggressively secular. All right. And so he goes on to say this, all right, keeping this in mind. Here's what, here's what he found. He, he talks about this later on in the article. He says, but now three provocative new surveys based on fresh sociological data challenge the traditional image of the United States as a secular nation with the soul of a church, all right? And, and here's what he concludes. These studies demonstrate that while religion pervades the American landscape, and here's what he says and what it boils down to, only a minority take it seriously. In fact, I, I was reading in a more recent survey uh, that, well, what this particular survey found is there may be as many as, you know, 70, 80% that would claim to be a Christian that would attend a church at least periodically. But some are even suggesting, like, if it boils down to it and you really kind of take it down to the essentials of what it means to trust Christ and follow Christ, potentially less than 10% of Americans today, at least according to this study. Again, basically, it's, it's one thing to call yourself a Christian, all right? But it's another thing to model it in the way that we live. And so that was the issue 2,000 years ago, today the same. And so James asks a good question, what good is it? What good is that kind of faith? And then he gives an example. He creates a scenario. Verse 15, he says, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, just hypothetically. If, if one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? He asks again. In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Now, without being judgmental or harsh here, I want to say that we all have moments like this, don't we? Like you can imagine a scenario, we come across a need, we, we, we see somebody that has some sort of need, whether it be a person that we know or a person that we don't know, we encounter them, and maybe we know that we have the resources to help, but if not, or maybe we know how to access those resources, but, but think about how often like we, we just keep on walking or we just go on with our lives. We've got different priorities or, or we don't want to go uh, to the trouble. And so I, I think what James is saying is it's one thing to identify a need, it's one thing to say that you should help, it's another to actually do something about it. Um, as I mentioned last week, my wife and I, and along with many of you, ran in the monumental uh, race last weekend. And uh, for me, never having done this before, it was all about sticking to the plan, all right? There, there, there was a plan involved and in all of the training and the preparation and not trying to think too far ahead, all right? Don't just one mile at a time. I like, don't think about, you know, the second half of the race or anything. And so uh, we, we got started into this race and I'm, I'm trying to not pay attention to the mile signs, all right? And if you've ever run a race before, you know, they typically 
really have the one mile mark too much. Don't, don't think about it. Like let them sneak up on you and surprise you, right? And, and you know, I'm worried about hydration and fueling. Just one foot in front of the other. Keep going. Looking at my watch, really trying to maintain a pace. I think it was around mile eight or nine we were running. And there was a woman running in front of us. And she had been carrying a water bottle. And she pulled it out to take a drink. And then she dropped it, right? And I just have to confess today that I turned to my wife and I said, I would love to help her right now, but I'm not going to. There's no way that I can stop, that I can get out of rhythm, pick up her water bottle and help her. So I did just that. I just kept on running and her water bottle just rolled on by. It's like, don't bring it if you're going to drop it, right? I mean, just, you know, but anyway, like we we see how it is. Listen to this. This This is so important. Hear this. Our good deeds, all right, your, your good deeds, they don't earn us greater favor with God. He doesn't love us any more or less because of our actions. But I also don't believe at, at the same time, I don't, I don't believe it. It's, I mean, I just, it's not possible to have every, help every person we ever come in contact with. Like, I get that tension. Like, it's, I think it's just one of the realities of living in a broken world. You know, we, we, we can't help everyone. But I love what Tim Keller says about our deeds and about mercy towards the poor. Listen to this. He says, mercy is such an essential mark of a Christian that it can be used as a test of true faith. And those powerful words there, all right? It can be, it's such an essential mark of a Christian that it can be used as a test of true faith. He says, mercy is not optional. It's not an additional part of being a Christian. Rather, a life poured out in deeds of mercy, he says, is the sign of genuine faith. And that's part of the point that James is trying to make here. He says, our works and deeds serve as evidence of our faith, all right? Which also means then that the absence of these things well, maybe they say a little more about our faith than we care to realize or acknowledge. And so James stands strong and then by saying, hey, you know what, faith like that, faith without works, it's dead. It's a corpse. It's not breathing. And as I was thinking about these words over the past week, I, I just got to tell you, I was a little tormented by how direct they are. Like part of me wanted to take the sting out of the words a little bit. Like if this were me and if I had been writing the letter, the people pleaser in me probably would have watered him down a little bit, but that's not what he does. In fact, James doubles down. Look at verse 18. He says, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. Now, once again, we have to be very careful with how we process these words here because James is not saying that deeds and actions save us. Again, he's writing to people who already claim to believe. And so he wouldn't say these same words to those who hadn't yet trusted Christ. And so what's he saying then? What's the point he's trying to make? Well, maybe this illustration will help. Think, think of what James is saying like a pendulum, all right? A pendulum that swings on a, on a grandfather clock or something. And so I just want you to imagine kind of both sides uh, of the pendulum. And so uh, maybe we'd say this, like to my right, to your left, we'll let this side of the pendulum represent good works, all right, good deeds, our actions, living these things out. It, it's easy for us to see people like this, even in our culture today, and say, you know what, those are good people. They're very caring people. They, they do a lot of good things. And, and those good works are important, all right? They're, they're really important. But, you know, and if you were to ask a question of, well, how, how do you know where you'll spend eternity one day? You know, it's a person like this that in a very extreme situation would say, well, because I'm doing good. Like I'm making every effort to do good things. And so that's how I earn my way to heaven. But we know that the scriptures also teach that our works can't save us. Like they, they can't do that work 
you know, for us, you know, o- only Christ can do that. Only, only Christ has paid the price. And so there are no amount of good deeds that can make you right with God. And so to one side of the pendulum, we have these actions and works and deeds. The other side of the pendulum is just the beliefs that we have. And, and this is more the intellectual side of our faith. And, and, you know, there, there, there are many people today that just think, you know, if I know the right information, I have the right theology, well, then that's all that really matters. And so, you know, people like this at times, you know, they're just craving one more study, you know, they're, they're just craving a little bit more information. Again, if you know the right things, a deeper teaching, we always want deeper and desire deeper teaching. But, but what James would say is, you know what, if it doesn't translate into action, what, what good is it? In fact, I think he'd say, you know what, a faith like that, that's just all about collecting information is useless. And in it's really extreme forms. I, I think people like this are often more known for what they're against than really what they're for, you know? Again, because it's about action. That's what James is after. And so is it any wonder then that James wrote, we looked at this word last week in James 1.22. He said, don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, do what it says. And so again, thinking about the difference between our deeds and actions and our beliefs, I guess what James is aiming for is greater balance, all right, greater balance in these things because if the pendulum swings too far towards deeds, we start thinking that it's our good works, that that's the only thing that matters. And if it starts swinging more towards our beliefs and we just think, well, if I've got the right information, if I study the right things, again, that's the only thing that matters. It doesn't matter how I live as long as, well, I've got the right details, but James is after the balance. That's what he's stressing here. And how do we achieve that balance? Well, I think these next words from the Apostle Paul might help us better understand because Paul talked a lot about this too. He talked a lot about genuine faith. And, and, and you know, uh, for James and Paul, they're, they're on the same team, all right, talking to two different audiences. But listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 8. He says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. All right, just to distinguish again, it's not your works that save you. All right, but look what he says, verse 10, he says, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And so what I want you to see is that what Paul is saying here is a lot like a recipe, a recipe for genuine faith, if you would. And in this recipe, uh, Paul identifies three essential ingredients. Now, imagine you're making a dinner and there are three primary ingredients. If you leave one of those ingredients out, it's going to be co- a completely different meal, all right? It's not, it's not going to taste like it's supposed to, all right? And so if you leave one out, it's not going to come out right. Well, in this case, Paul gives us this recipe. Here's what we're going to call it, three ingredients for a living faith if you're taking notes, all right? Three ingredients that really kind of get to the heart. And I do want to say this. If you are here today and you're not a Christian, if you're new to this, if you're new to church, uh, I think this is most important for you today. And this really just kind of spells out the heart of Christianity and really what we're chasing after or really trying to chase after as followers of Christ. Here's what it boils down to. He says the first ingredient in this passage is God's grace. That's the foundation. That's what matters most that we have a gracious and a loving God who sent his son, Jesus Christ, who gave his life and paid the price for sin, my sin and your sin. And the truth of God's word just simply says this, it's a free gift. You don't earn it. We don't deserve it. Just like the songs we were singing, it's the free gift given by God for everyone. And our understanding of faith starts here. 
It has to start with that. It has to start with the free gift of God's grace. So that's ingredient number one. The second ingredient has everything to do with how we respond to that truth, with how we respond to God's grace, because we receive it through belief in Jesus Christ. That's not forced upon you. God's never going to force his love upon you. You've got to choose to receive it freely. And that's the heart of what Paul's getting at here. Here's what he also said in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, just to make it clear. He says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, guess what? It's true. You will be saved. Salvation, forgiveness, new beginning, new start. And so it's God's grace through faith that we are saved. And we have this grace and we get this free gift of God, but we got to choose to believe and receive it. Straightforward, right? So far. But James doesn't stop there. Again, remember, he's talking to Christians who have already received that. They have that foundation. And as important as believing in is he wants more. He wants more from his people for us. James 2.19, he says, you believe that there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Those are strong words there. In other words, he says, if your idea of a saving faith is solely based on belief Guess what? You've got something in common with Satan's demons. They believe. They believe in Christ. In fact, I was reading this past week. There's not an atheist demon alive. They all believe in God. They all believe in Christ. But in the end, they won't be saved because it's not enough to just simply believe. And so James pleads with us that there's got to be more. Please see that there's more. Paul helps us to realize that there's more to our faith. He does the same too. Again, verse 10. In Ephesians 2, he says, For we are God's handiwork, saved by grace through faith, created in Christ Jesus to what? To do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And so that's the third ingredient, really, to a living faith, a faith that matters, a genuine faith. It's good works. It's things like giving and serving and sharing the good news of Christ with others. It's loving people well. See, our deeds are important. Our actions are important. How we treat people, how we love people, how generous we are. These are important things. But I want you to say this with me. In fact, I want you to say this out loud. Repeat this after me. Deeds can't save you. Say it with me. Deeds can't save you. All right? Our actions can't save us. Uh, You can't work hard enough. You and I, we can't give enough. We can't love people enough to earn the love of God. But both James and Paul are demonstrating how good works are essential, essential to, to, to a living faith. They're not the saving part of our faith, but they are the fruit. They are the evidence of Christ working in us. Write this down on your notes. We don't have this on the screen, but I found this this morning. I love this. We are not saved by good works, all right? We are not saved by good works, but for good works, all right? We're not saved by good works, but for good works. And it's Jesus and his presence in us that produces these good works in us as we abide in him. And so maybe part of the reflection for you and for me are questions like this. Is he, is he making me more generous? You know, is he making me more compassionate? Is he giving me a, a heart for the less fortunate? Is he helping peop, me see people in my, in my church, in our church, the way that he sees them? Is he helping me to see people in our community the way that he sees people in our community? Uh, you might ask, do I have a living faith? Is there a genuine living faith at work in me? Now look at how James closes this section. He's going to give us two examples from the Old Testament of people who had a living faith. And one is expected, but one of is a little bit of a surprise. Let's pick it up in verse 20. He writes, you foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? 
Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way was not even Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body, he says, without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Now, the listeners of the day would have expected somebody like Abraham. That's a great example of faith. Any, any Jewish listener would have really looked to Abraham really as the father of the faith. And God, if you know his story at all, told Abraham and his family to leave their country and to move to a brand new place. We do that today. People didn't do that back then, but Abraham went in faith. And one day God called to Abraham and told him, hey, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, and I want you to take him to the top of the hill and I want you to sacrifice him. And Abraham did just that. He started up the hill with his son until God stopped him and said, no, 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 it was just a test. Then you passed. You passed because of your faith. Again, growing up, every Jewish person would have heard that and understood that, that Abraham is a lesson in faith. And what was the lesson? His actions and his beliefs were working together. He's living out his faith. There was a balance to both. But then James chose another example, and this one's kind of a surprise. He chose a woman by the name of Rahab, a prostitute from the land of Canaan. Uh, which God had promised to his people. And Rahab, uh, she offered uh, the spies. Moses sent the, the spies into, it's a long story, I'll give you the quick details, but Moses sent uh, the people in to spy out the new land. And, and, and Rahab, she gave them shelter. She hid them when the enemy came looking for them. And in, uh, in response, when, when the Israelites finally invaded that promised land, uh, God protected Ahab, Rahab and, and her family. And why? Because she was a person of faith and Again, not only because of what she believed, but through her deeds and actions, there was a blending of, of the two. There was a balance of both. And so James points to both of these ex as examples. I, I think James would say, you know what, this, this is what I'm striving for. And as I'm striving for these things, I'm, I'm asking you to do the same. He, he wants this for these Christians that are listening and reading for you and me. And, and so with all that he said and the two examples he just mentioned, he concludes this section saying again, verse 26, and I'm going to read it in the New Living Translation. He said, just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. And I think if you're a listener then, you can't help but ask, wow, is, is my faith alive or is my faith dead? I, I hope that we can't help today, but maybe ask every single one of us, is my faith alive right now? Or is my faith dead? And what James wants for us is really, well, really what it comes down to is he wants what God wants, because these are the Lord's words. God, God is speaking these words through James, and he, he wants us to be people of faith, to know who we are and what Christ has accomplished for us and who we are in him, again, forever changed by the grace of God, but as we believe that, as we trust that, as we reflect on that, it just it can't help but change us. And so we make it our goal every single day. We talk about this all the time to model the way of Jesus in everything that we do. You know, because Jesus is the greatest example, really, of he, he was a man of great faith and belief. But man, he lived it out every single day and in every interaction and in every moment. He's his beliefs and his actions were working together. And for us, as we abide in Christ, 
as we make it our goal to daily abide in Christ, we become more aware of these things. And the work that God does in us is we're more willing to live this way. And Christ begins bearing his fruit in our lives. And that's really what we're chasing after. And even as you think about what these words mean for you today, it's like, what environment has the Lord put you in where you can live more and more like Christ, that not only what you believe matters, but you're living out these things for others to see. And that can be true of where you work. That can be true of the school that you attend, the college campus that you're on right now. It's certainly true in your family and in your home and the way that you treat your spouse. Like we want to make it our goal to not just simply be people with beliefs, but we want to be people of action. We want to live as Christ is living through us. And we want to help as a church. In fact, uh, these next few weeks, uh, next month really, um, I think it's going to be a great time as Thanksgiving and Christmas approach that uh, if you desire, if you really want to kind of take a step in putting faith to, to action, we've got some great opportunities. Next week, we're going to start talking about our Love Your Neighbor Drive, and we've done this the last few Christmases where we come alongside of ministries like Food for Souls to help provide some, some really important winter items uh, for the poor and for the homeless community in Indianapolis, and we're going to give you an opportunity to respond to that. That's one way. Uh, of kind of putting your faith to work. It's one way for us as a church to put our faith uh, to action. One thing that we're going to do new this year, and it's coming up later in December, Christmas weekend. All right, we're going to offer four identical services Christmas weekend. We'll talk about that more soon, but we're going to take an offering Christmas weekend, and we're going to give it all away. Uh, we're going to give 100% of it away. And so I'd love to ask you to be praying right now about how the Lord might give through you. How can we be a blessing to some of our partners in ministry and uh, really put our faith uh, into action? But uh, as we've talked about the last couple of weeks, one of the ways that we put our faith to action is signing up for a ministry team and saying, you know what, I want, I want to serve as a part of my church. Or it's you identifying some people in your life that the Lord has put near you that you might help and serve. It's making intentional decisions every single day to act on your faith to do as you feel led, to try and be Jesus to others as much as you can. Now, I know that you might think I can't do too much or I don't have much time or I don't have a lot of money or the little bit that I can do, really, will it really make any dent in some of the problems that we see in our world today? I wanna encourage you with this. It, it could make a dent in the problems of one person, right? And, and I love this. I heard a pastor say one time, do for one what you'd love to do for everyone. All right, that, that's what Jesus did. One at a time, one person at a time. These are the opportunities that we have. Before we close, as I was thinking about why this is so important, my, my mind couldn't help but go to the book of Acts. And the book of Acts in the New Testament is a history book, really, that just kind of outlines the early church. And Christ had ascended into heaven. The Holy Spirit was on the church. And here's how they acted. Here's how the Holy Spirit acted through them. And I thought to myself, you know, 2,000 years ago, uh, if you didn't have any idea at all what the church was supposed to look like and all you had was the book of Acts, I mean, I think it'd be pretty amazed what we'd see and maybe the questions we'd ask about what we're doing today. Like, what were the people doing then? Look at these words, Acts 2, uh, starting in verse 42. Here's how they were acting. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Look what they did. They sold property and possessions and gave to anyone who had need. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like a lot of good works to me. All right? It's living out their faith. It's these actions. No one was hungry. No one was worried about rent or paying the mortgage. Uh, no one was worried about how to take care of the sick or their loved ones. Why? Because the church took care of its own. These were people. The church doesn't do anything by itself. It's people. It's one person at a time saying, I'm in. 
I'll act. I'll live out my faith. And look what happened as a result. Verse 46, it says, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts and praising God. And look at this, and enjoying the favor of all the people. And so the implication here is that the church enjoyed the favor of all the people, meaning that others, even outside of the church, were looking in and were just in awe at how these Christians were living and thinking to themselves, you know what, I, I, don't, I don't know if I believe what they believe, but there's something intriguing about the way they live and the way they see life and the way they give and the way they are generous. Let me ask you something. Do you think the church, and I mean capital C church, enjoys the favor of the people in our country right now? Probably not, in general at least. And, and there are so many factors that go into this from the you know, way we're portrayed in popular movies or TV shows and some of these things that we, maybe a lot of them we bring on ourselves, but some of it is just the reality of this invisible war that we live in today. But the church today in general doesn't enjoy the favor of all the people. But in the first church, the church in Jerusalem, the church in the Roman Empire, well, the, the church they just started to catch the world's attention. And things are going to change and people are going to come to Christ. And why is this so important? Because look at what happened. Again, verse 47, the last part of it says, And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And so people started finding their way back to God and mostly because of what was happening in and through the people in this first church. And you see, that's how the recipe works. God gives us grace. We respond in belief. And as a result, we do good works. And people start taking notice and people are finding their way back to God. And again, this is why our deeds, our actions really matter because if you feed somebody, they're gonna be hungry again. If you give somebody shelter or clothes, there's a chance some of those things will wear out. But if somebody finds their way back to God, everything changes for that person for all of eternity. Life changes. And it happened in the first church in Jerusalem. And friends, Genesis Church, it can happen today. I believe with all of my heart that God wants to use every single one of us. He wants to use our church here in Hamilton County and beyond. And James realized that because James was a part of this first church. He had seen it happening. And so he said to these Christians who had been scattered now, hey, do you remember? You remember what God was doing in Jerusalem through the church? He can do it again. I know you're going through tough times, but it's not by accident that God is spreading you out now around the world. And it's not enough to just believe. Go out tomorrow and live it out. Live it out with your actions. Again, we are not saved by good works, but for good works. Genesis, let's be that kind of church, living faith, overwhelmed by God's grace, that it's gotta come out of us and others see it. The band's gonna lead us in this last song. We're gonna sing and respond and it's powerful words, but I love the phrase as I was listening to him this morning, just as I'm laying down my life. And that's really where it all begins for us. Christ laid down his life for us. Will we lay down our lives for him? Let's stand and sing as we close together.